0: The most valuable thing I learned, and one of the biggest light bulb moments for me during therapy at the Emily program, was discovering that perfectionism was really at the heart of a lot of my mental health issues and my eating disorder. I had been told from the time I was a very, very small child that I was a pretty extreme perfectionist. And I didn't really see it, I didn't really believe it because to me, it was just like, well, yeah, of course, why wouldn't you want to be perfect or why wouldn't you want to do everything perfectly? To me, that just seemed normal and, you know, shooting for perfect seemed average and that's just what you would do.
1: Hello and welcome to the Art of Living Well podcast. I'm Stephanie May Potter and I'm here with my co-host, Marnie duchess Marmet. We
2: created the Art of Living Well podcast to empower you to live your happiest, healthiest and most authentic life. Each week we will bring you inspiring and motivating conversations covering health and wellness topics including fitness, mindset, food, travel, product reviews, and strategies from a variety of experts including our own bank of knowledge.
1: We are excited to educate, motivate, and inspire you to change the way you perceive health and discover your art of living well. Get ready to feel inspired.
2: Hello, and welcome to episode 89 of the Art of Living Well podcast. I hope everyone is outside enjoying summer and spending more time gathering with friends and family. We still have a few weeks left, and we wanted to make sure that you know that our next quarterly liver detox is coming up, and it will kick off on Sunday, September 19th. The sign-up information and details can be found by clicking the link in the show notes on our Instagram bio, on our website, um, or at any other places you can find us online. And finally, before we dive into today's episode, we want to ask that if you're enjoying this podcast, if you could please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It takes just two minutes and really helps us reach more people so that others can benefit from All these inspiring conversations that we're having and resources that we share each week. So thank you. We are so excited to introduce today's guest, Lisa Whalen. Lisa has a Ph.D. um, in post-secondary and adult education and a master's in creative and critical writing from Hamlin University. She teaches composition, literature, and creative writing at North Hennepin Community College in Brooklyn Park, Minnesota. Lisa began riding horses as a beginner in her 30s and has since progressed to advanced jumping classes. She's passionate about horses' capacity for fostering healing and personal growth among those who interact with them. Lisa believes that narratives impact a person's cognitive, social, emotional, and psychological development. She thinks they shape how individuals experience pain, view the world, and conceive of personal identity. Narrative therapy is an important tool for healing, and it is especially powerful when combined with equine interaction. Lisa has recently written a book called Stable Weight, a Memoir of Hunger, Horses, and Hope. And it's the story about um, Lisa trying to be perfect and how that She ends up in a psych ward at the age of 29, um, and she has an eating disorder, and that treatment sets her on a path toward health, Um, but her progress stalls until she meets 10 special horses, and they teach her how to face her fears, trust her intuition, live in the moment, and love her body. In this episode, we talk a lot about letting go of perfectionism taking up space and trusting your inner compass, treating yourself how you'd treat your best friend and taking things as they come instead of trying to control everything and everyone around you. We love chatting with Lisa about all of these themes and the insight that she provides um, based on her life's experiences. But first, a quick word from our new sponsor... The Healthy Place, an online and brick and mortar supplement store based in Wisconsin. We know how overwhelming and confusing shopping for vitamins and supplements can be, and many people start taking supplements without understanding what their body needs. It is so important to ensure that the supplements you're taking are high quality, free of common allergens, GMOs, and third-party tested, so you know that what you are putting in your body is actually what it states on the bottle. We recently sat down and chatted with the founder of The Healthy Place, Tim O'Brien, whose mission as a company is to impact, empower, and educate every customer to learn, grow, and create a lifelong foundation of health and wellness. Both Tim and his wife and co-owner, Becky, strive to inspire their customers to make healthy changes that will impact every area of their life. And we couldn't agree more with their values.
1: One of the things that sets the healthy place apart from the other places that you can buy supplements from is their team of wellness consultants who are ready to help you find the highest quality product. They won't just find you a product for what you believe you may need, They ask questions to understand the underlying condition that you're trying to address, and they really guide and educate you on your journey to find wellness. And now they have an online chat feature that duplicates the level of service that you get from their in-person store, allowing you to receive personalized service from the comfort of your home. Some common ailments they love helping customers address include chronic pain, stress, anxiety, sleep issues, and even energy and immunity. We were so impressed with their genuine desire to help educate and motivate their customers to get to the root of their issue and address it in a very holistic way another benefit we love about findyourhealthyplace.com is that they carry many different vetted brands so that you are not stuck with one brand or product to try so head on over to findyourhealthyplace.com and chat with an online wellness consultant you can use code livingwell for 30 percent off the full price of your supplement purchase Hi, Lisa. Good morning. We are so excited to have you as a guest on our podcast today. I'm Um, glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Yes. Um, We're excited about your new book that you wrote and just for you to share all the valuable and inspiring messages that you've learned through all your life's experiences. So to start out the conversation, everyone has a story and we know that you have quite a journey from growing up as a shy and timid girl in Nebraska through some trauma in your teenage years to learning to ride horses later in life, and then ultimately writing and publishing a book. So could you share your journey with our audience?
0: Yeah, um, I, like you said, I started out very shy. And I always thought of myself as just very ordinary, growing up in Nebraska, where it's not a place that you hear about much in terms of like, national or even regional in the, in the Midwest, you don't hear a whole lot about it. It's not given a lot of attention. And I kind of thought of myself as just the typical, you know, girl growing up average in school, average in this, average in that. And um, I think I I was very shy and I had a lot of self-image issues, but I don't think I realized a lot of that except for the shyness when I was young. And it's only through looking back that I realized how there were some contributors to that built upon my shyness and made me, I think, even more have even more struggles with my self-image. But in when I was in third grade, right in the middle of the school year, my dad got transferred for his job and we moved to Omaha. And, you know, it's only probably four or five hours away from the town I grew up in, which was North Platte. It was still in the same state and everything. But for some reason, (laughs) that proved to be pretty I wouldn't say traumatic, but it was pretty dramatic for my sister and me both. We had a pretty hard time adjusting to being in a bigger city. It was a very different setting. The people that we met at school had very different values. And just everything about it was so different. It was kind of a culture shock. So we went through a hard time adjusting. And then things went along pretty smoothly until I became a teenager and I was in high school and I had this relationship that just the breakup was really rough and it, it, it kind of set off a lot of those body image issues for me again and some of the shyness cause I had just started coming out of my shell. And so that's really when a lot of the struggles with the eating disorder and the depression started. And I had a couple of like instances where I tried to get help but doctors were not particularly receptive or didn't really take it seriously. So my issues with the eating disorder and depression carried on through college and then into my mid-20s. And it wasn't until I was in Minnesota after college that I finally felt like I could get help. And I asked for an appointment at the EMILY program, which is now a really nationally renowned center for eating disorders. It started very small here in St. Paul. Um, and that was really the start of my Healing journey, and where I really feel like I learned about living well and what that means, and how I could do it, and what kind of work I could do to maintain that. But the real turning point for that came when I just on a whim started taking a few horseback riding lessons at a small farm in Wisconsin, just over the border. And there I I I tell people it was kind of like a practicum for therapy. It basically had me practice and apply in the moment and in real life and in a physical setting, what I had learned about wellness and balance and all of those things in my therapy. So it's a very small individual Midwestern journey and very unremarkable in some ways, but the fact that I ended up riding horses as an adult and then went on to write about it and publish a book made it feel sort of big to me as someone who was shy and didn't really want a lot of attention when I was a young kid.
2: Well, well, first of all, thank you for sharing your story. And I wanna say that I think everybody's story is important and deserves to be heard. And so you should never say that your story is unremarkable because it's your story and it is remarkable. Um, but I'm curious to hear more about, if you don't mind, about your eating disorder and what what did you learn about yourself in that process that you went through, I guess, maybe with the EMILY program and what insight really helped you kind of dig into those issues?
0: Yeah, the most valuable thing I learned and one of the biggest light bulb moments for me during therapy at the EMILY program was discovering that perfectionism was really at the heart of a lot of my mental health issues and my eating disorder. I have been told from the time I was a very, very small child that I was a pretty extreme perfectionist and I didn't really see it. I didn't really believe it. Cause to me, it was just like, well, yeah, of course, why wouldn't you want to be perfect? Or why wouldn't you want to do everything perfectly to me? That just seemed normal and, you know, shooting for perfect seemed average and that's just what you would do. But my therapist at the Emily program really helped me to see how much of a perfectionist I was both in terms of the extent and I guess in terms of depth and breadth, I would say I was pretty perfectionistic about everything. And it doesn't necessarily apply to everyone, but it's a pretty common trait among people who suffer from eating disorders is this idea of wanting to be perfect and feeling like you have to be perfect in order to be worthy and to be loved and therefore to be happy, which is ultimately I think the end goal. But in my head, none of that was linked. I didn't see the through line until therapy really helped to enlighten that for me. Um, So perfectionism was a huge one. I had to learn how to recognize that. And then Once I recognized it, I had to learn how to negotiate. Is this an appropriate situation where maybe shooting for perfect is okay? Or is this me being compulsive about it? And maybe I should cut myself a break and be a little kinder here. And that was the other thing that therapy really helped me realize was I was pretty hard on myself. And I was not nearly as kind or patient with myself as I was with other people. And again it was something I had a blind spot. I didn't I didn't see it. I you know, I just thought that was pretty normal until my therapist helped me to see, wow, you know, you wouldn't treat anyone else that way, right? You wouldn't say that to anyone else or about anyone else. So why would you say that to or about yourself? And that was a pretty big learning curve was learning to recognize when I was being unnecessarily harsh or judgmental or impatient with myself and learning to grant myself some grace and kindness and patience and horses were so instrumental to that too. I don't want to go on too long, um, but if you want, I can talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I guess before you, you dive into the horses cause we want to talk a lot about that. You know, I just find it, you know, it, it saddens me, and I think Marty and I—we've had lots of conversations with women who are so hard on themselves and have this perfectionism, this perfectionistic tendency. You know, we just we just dropped an episode recently talking exactly about this. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you're not perfect now. Let's deal with it or something. We kind of—I'm um, going to tell you the episode it. number while you guys are talking. Yes. Um. You know, why I'd love to just dig back, dig a little bit more, maybe specifically to either what you think contributed to some of that maybe growing up or what you've experienced or seen in others since going through this and writing the book.
0: Yeah, I agree with you completely. I, in hindsight, I've seen a lot of the perfectionism, especially in women, I think, and especially with body image and self image. And I'm not exactly sure where in the big scheme of things, where that comes from. I suspect maybe you know, the world, or at least the society we live in was sort of built for and around white men. And that was sort of the standard. And so I think a lot of us as women, we grow up comparing ourselves to that standard and looking to see, well, where do I measure up? Where am I at with that standard? And that probably develops a habit of perfectionism because we're always comparing ourselves and measuring ourselves to some standard somewhere. Um, On a more personal level, writing the book really helped me to trace some of the places where that came from. Um, I, I think part of it was religion. I was raised Catholic. Um, and my, my parents were a former priest and a former nun actually. So, wow. (laughs) Yeah. So my upbringing was very steeped in Catholicism and my parents were very, um, I'm not sure how to say this. They were very steeped in sort of the social justice, um, I guess, more liberal interpretation of Catholicism rather than the very harsh, old school, very conservative version of it. So it's not that it was cruel or harsh, but when I started to look back at it, I started to see those veins of perfectionism in the way that Catholicism shaped my worldview and my view of myself and the purpose of life and everything else too, right? It was always striving to be better. And you confessed your sins in order to cleanse yourself. And you did penance in order to pay back for those sins and avoid repeating them. And so I saw a lot of those themes too. Um, I think another, well, a related piece of that was my dad, um, he had an unusual upbringing that I, I see echoes carrying into in my life and into perfectionism too. He was an only child and his mom died of a kidney disease when he was only five. And then his, his father, who was also an only child, so he really didn't have any extended family, sent him to seminary school out of state when he was 14. Oh, wow. And- he basically was raised there for the rest of his upbringing. They weren't allowed to visit home their mail and phone calls and everything was really restricted. And so I think that shaped his worldview and his sense of perfectionism and everything else too, which then affected how he parented. Um, He was a really loving supportive father. He was great, but I can see looking back how some of the, the trauma that he went through as a young child and then being raised in a seminary basically and treated like an adult when he was 14, how that also had some negative effects on his parenting and his self-image too. I think he struggled a lot with self-image, but he was such an extrovert and a people person that he dealt with it very differently than I did. And it it came out very differently for him than it did for me. And I didn't see a lot of that until I really started examining some of it when I was writing the book.
1: Okay, well, thank you for sharing all that. That's so insightful. And I have to say, as I guess I was raised Catholic, I don't wanna think I was currently practicing that much, but um, you know, I, I can see some of these philosophies And my parents were very, very strict Catholic. They weren't former nuns and priests, but they were, (laughs) but they were, but they were strict Catholic and the sins and the penance, like all this is making sense with these perfectionism, perfectionistic tendencies. Um, and then really how like your parents' experiences, and again, our parents were all doing the best they could with what they had. So this is like no judgment, absolutely none, but their experiences become part of us. And I think like, that's what like some of this, like the therapy and the things that you did writing the book, like writing the memoir was probably therapeutic, right? Yeah, Um, definitely. To be able to go, I think it's really important, I guess, in the healing journey is what I'm trying to say. So I think that's wonderful. And I think that's like great, hopefully insight
0: for others um, who are on a similar journey. Yeah. And I, um, it's really interesting what you said about, you know, no, no criticism or judgment. I I don't take it that way. And it just reminded me that like, I know my mom was, she was, she's so supportive. Like my parents were great. I had nothing negative to say about them. I, I feel incredibly lucky. And I hope that comes through in the memoir. This was not at all sort of a you know, a tell all or blame my parents for, for my problems kind of thing. Cause I was incredibly fortunate and my mom was a little nervous when she found out I was writing this memoir and I kept reassuring her. I'm like, you have nothing to worry about. I have nothing bad to say. The only potentially negative things were that, um, you know, a lot of my dad's struggles came through in terms of having a pretty fiery temper and having being fairly impatient when I was young And so that did complicate, I think some of my self image issues, some of how hard I was on myself, but I writing the book and thinking about where that might've come from, from him and his upbringing actually gave me even more compassion and understanding Mm -hmm. and forgiveness for him than I'd had when I was younger. And I was just like, geez, chill out. You know, why are you freaking out? Why are you getting so mad about these little things?
2: It's funny how as we grow up, we can gain more compassion for our own parents, right? Because we start to understand, you know, their backgrounds, their histories, or where things are coming from, the more life experience you have as a, you know, grown adult. So I think that's really good to point out. I want to change gears a little bit and go back to the horses. Um, I'm so fascinated about this. So I um, first of all, I love the movie, the horse whisperer.
0: (laughs) I don't have a lot of
2: experience with horses, but I love that movie. Um, and I know the girl, you know, uses the horse. They, they use the horse in a very therapeutic way for the young girl in that movie. But, um, I also had like a horse experience when I was out in Arizona at a wellness spa a few years ago and horses actually make me nervous. But they had us doing things like brushing the horse and like trying to lift the leg and walking the horse around the ring and doing all these things. And and then they would tell you, like, you know, what's going on with your own personality based on the way you react to the horse. So I'm really curious to hear you talk about um, how the horses have helped you through your own recovery
0: yeah, I can relate to so much of what you said. I even though I was interested in horseback riding lessons and wanted to do it, once I actually got there, um because I really didn't have any experience with horses either. I went to a one week camp where we rode horses when I was 12, but other than that I had no experience or exposure to them. And once I got there as an adult and I was next to them, I was like well, yeah, they're really big and they're really strong and they have metal shoes on their feet and they can kick. And, you know, it was pretty intimidating, even though I wanted to be there and I had taken action to be there. Um, I think one of the most powerful experiences for me very early on at Seventh Farm where I took lessons is they, they require of everybody who starts as a beginner that the third week of your lessons, you do something called groundwork. And it's basically just getting comfortable and familiar with the horse from the ground rather than in a saddle. So they had us with no equipment or tack or anything. We would be on the ground with the horse. And the whole point was, okay, you've got to move this horse using just your energy and your intention. You don't get to touch them. You don't have a lead rope. And that was very intimidating. I was like, you've got to be kidding. Right. And, It sort of dialed right into so much of what I was trying to work on in therapy because suddenly I felt like when I was growing up and so much of my eating disorder was all about wanting to be tiny and small and insignificant, not wanting to take up space, wanting to be invisible. And suddenly here I had to project physical presence and I had to take up space because horses communicate by, Giving and taking personal space. Um, if they, the more senior and dominant and higher in the hi- hierarchy a horse is, the more they get to sort of move in on other horses or determine the personal space between them. The lower ranking horses will always move out of the way for a higher ranking one. And so I had to convince this horse that is so much bigger and more powerful than I am and doesn't speak language. Uh, which was always my one thing that I really felt confident about. I suddenly had to get this horse to move out of my way. So I had to take on a physical presence. I had to feel expansive rather than wanting to shrink. I had to claim taking up space and be comfortable with that. And the other thing too, is that it's not at all about being aggressive or violent or harsh Um, it's more about having a conversation and a partnership with the horse. So you have to gain their trust and get them on board. So for me, it was so much training in assertiveness too, and learning what that meant, which as a teacher was hugely helpful, um, with my dad's temper growing up. I think I got this idea that you were either kind and compliant and quiet and nice, or, you were explosive and um, you know, kind of blew up at people and there was nothing in between. And so horses taught me that, no, there is a whole spectrum. You can be kind and compassionate. You can be a partner, but you can also be strong and assertive and tell that partner what to do and expect them to do it. And that was huge training for me too, especially in terms of the eating disorder and depression. So much of depression comes from feeling, Like you have no agency and those feelings of hopelessness and that you're sort of subject to everybody else's wills and whims and life's wills and whims. And so horses really taught me how to claim agency and that I didn't have to be, you know, an explosive person, which I didn't, I just don't have that in my nature to begin with. Um, I don't think I could even tap into that if I wanted to. So all of that was such a huge light bulb for me. Um, And then just practicing it every week as I continued lessons was, like I said, it felt like a practicum for therapy. It was just like, okay, you've got these concepts in therapy. Now you're going to have to practice them over and over and over in the moment in your mind and your body. It's, it put all those pieces together for me.
1: That is so fascinating. And as someone who, I mean, I've been on a horse like once or twice in my life, Um, and like Marnie, you know, sometimes a little intimidated by them. I think that's just so cool. Do you think there's something specific about horses or is, can this concept be brought into other animals?
0: I think a lot of it does apply to all animals. I, I think part of what drew me to horseback riding lessons was that I, um, when I was going through these rough times, I had this cat that I adopted from the shelter and, he was so unconditionally accepting and just loved me for who I was. Didn't care about what I looked like. Didn't care if I was thin or fat or having a good eating day or a bad eating day. Um, And he was just such a constant, steady, loving presence, even though he'd come from a very harsh situation, you know, he'd had a lot of uncertainty coming from a shelter and being given up and all these things. So that, that, really started my affection for animals. And then I started volunteering at the shelter and I learned so much about the bond between animals and humans and how to read their behavior and communicate most of my life. I'd been afraid of dogs and I really didn't like them, but I became a huge dog lover through this and um, learned a little bit about dog or animal therapy too. Um, So I think it is broadly applicable to animals, but there are some unique things about horses. They're incredibly sensitive. And Marnie, you had mentioned that they reflected back and um, the people that were doing the activity that you did said, Oh, well, the horse is showing this about your personality or your state. They're really uniquely talented at that. And the psychology of it was always fascinating to me. Um, It might not be to other horse, non-horse people, but it all stems from the idea that they're prey animals. So their every thought, behavior, feeling, it's all driven by the fact that they're prey. And the only defense they have is their herd or fleeing. They don't have any natural defense mechanisms. And so to them, everything is a threat until they learn that it's not. And it's not just a little threat. It's potentially a threat to their survival. And I think I identified a little bit with that too, just metaphorically. So, um, because they're so tuned into that and if their survival so, um, dependent on it, they're really receptive. They're just aware of everything that's going on and they they really operate on energy. So they're great at sensing your energy and emotions. And sometimes even when I'm not aware that I'm feeling something or preoccupied with something that happened at work or whatever, and I get there, I can start to see in the horse's behavior and how they're reacting to me. Oh, hmm, something might be going on with me. I might need to think about that. So they are really uniquely gifted, I think, in helping humans work through a lot of you know, their challenges or their emotions, or I know a lot of equine therapy has, is being developed and it's growing for victims of PTSD, for soldiers coming back from war who have PTSD. And there are even some prison programs that use horses to help teach things like compassion and partnership and assertiveness versus aggressiveness and things like that too.
1: Wow
2: so interesting and fascinating. It's like a whole other world.
0: (laughs) It is, yeah, and I think that's why, you know, I thought I was just gonna take a few horseback riding lessons one summer as a fun little summer activity. And now here I am, how many years later, still riding every week, because there's no end to the learning, which is part of what I love about it too.
1: So let's, I mean, we've talked a little bit about the fact that you've written this book, but you have a book that you published fairly recently Stable Weight, A Memoir of Hunger, Horses, and Hope. And I know each chapter of the book provides a takeaway message for living well. And we talked a little bit about letting go of perfectionism, but can you maybe talk about some of these other areas um, and just dive in a little bit and provide some insight to our listeners?
0: Yeah. Well, one of the things that horses have really taught me a lot about is leadership, which you know, I, when I Before I started horseback riding lessons, but when I was still dealing with a lot of depression and eating disorder, I was trying to become a college professor and teaching for most of my life had just seemed so outside the bounds of what I wanted or could do because I was so shy and didn't like attention and didn't like people looking at me. Um, But I found that I really liked teaching, but I, I needed to learn more about leadership and assertiveness. And so part of what riding teaches is that you have to be a partner and a leader at the same time in order to get the horse to do what you want especially when you start jumping obstacles and the stakes are higher for for both the horse and the rider so um there were a lot of little lessons in that for me as a teacher too in terms of getting students to want to partner with me but also maintaining boundaries where they're not my peer Um, and they're not my supervisor or my superior. So I have to negotiate that balance between partnership and leadership, which the horses were so good at teaching me. And so much of it is nonverbal, which was a a whole insight to me too, because I've always been very verbal. I love, I've always loved books and texts and writing and everything since I was young. Um, I think one of the other really valuable lessons, especially in terms of wellness that the horses taught me is you got to take one thing at a time and you have to stay in the moment. Horses are always in the present. They, they really, with the exception of maybe remembering something that was a potential threat, they're just always in the present and you have to stay in the present in order to partner with them. So as someone who was pretty high anxiety, um, I was always anticipating the future and I was very rarely in the moment. So, the way horses set the example and asked me to stay in the present was really good practice. And then, with learning to jump obstacles, I had to really learn and practice one thing at a time. Um, that perfectionism streak, too you know, you want to take in everything, you want to do it all at once, or you want to get it all right the first time, which is a pretty unreasonable and unrealistic way to approach most things in life. So even if I had three or four um, little obstacles in a row that I wanted to jump, I couldn't be three fences out in my head and take the first one. I had to stay in the moment and go, no, no, we're we're jumping this fence right now. So focus on this fence so you don't end up on the ground. And so, um, and even just learning to ride, it's it's pretty complicated and nuanced, and there's a lot to it. So I had to be okay with getting this one little thing right this time and trusting that I could build on that later rather than wanting to be perfect about every aspect of writing, every lesson. And just going back to that perfectionism theme too, one of the the earliest light bulb moments for me in terms of how beneficial writing could be was when my teacher had said to me, um, well, the horses aren't perfect. And they don't try to be perfect and they don't care about being perfect. So that lets you off the hook, right? They're never going to be perfect. And so if you're riding with them, you're never going to be perfect. And so stop trying. And that was huge too. It was like, okay, well, the horses, they're not even thinking about that. They don't care. So why am I so preoccupied with it? We're just going to muddle through this together. And that really lessened the pressure and gave me a way to think about approaching other things too, whether it was a lesson in the classroom or an interaction in my marriage or something like that too. So
2: do you think um, like, would you consider yourself in the present to be kind of a recovering perfectionist or do you feel like you still have those tendencies um, and maybe you still kind of grapple with, you know, self-image and some of that, but you're able, but you have the tools to, you um, kind of keep it in check. (laughs) I don't know.
0: Yeah, I, I definitely think it's a lifelong practice and a lifelong learning experience. I would, um, from what I understand, most experts consider someone who has had an eating disorder just perpetually in recovery rather than like cured, which was another really hard thing for me to accept and practice. And ironically, it was, pretty familiar concept because my dad spent most of his career as a substance abuse counselor. And so this language of being in recovery, not recovered, um, and managing rather than fixing or curing was all really familiar and comfortable to me. But the idea that I wouldn't be fixed or cured or I could just do this and then it would be solved was really hard for me to accept. Um, but I think I, I definitely would consider myself recovering in terms of perfectionism and the eating disorder. It's something that requires maintenance and practice. Um, but that's been a really good lesson for me too. I would, I would say I'm much happier and healthier now having learned how to do that and still having to maintain it than I ever was before when I maybe looked more like the way I wanted to look. If that makes mm-hmm. sense.
1: Yeah. And I love that you pointed out the skill you learned from the horseback riding and just being present and in the moment. I think that's such a, that's something that I think so many people, including myself, struggle with. Um, and I just, I had never, never thought about that in the context of learning the new skill of, you know, riding horses.
2: Well, and I think dogs do the same thing. It's like your dog, you know, when your dog wants your attention, you're throwing the ball or whatever it is. It's like, they are so in the moment and they just, how can you not be in the moment with them?
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: So as we start to wrap up this conversation, Lisa, we'd love to leave our listeners with some practical tips and strategies that they can implement immediately into their life. And I know there's, like we said, there's a lot of people out there that struggle with perfectionism and body image and eating disorders, mental health. What suggestions do you have for anyone going through these challenges that they can, you know, just little things that they could start to do today in their day-to-day life.
0: Yeah. One of the best practices that I learned from treatment that I still use all the time is asking myself, is this something I would say or do or think about my best friend? And if not, then I shouldn't say or do or think it about myself. Um, So thinking of myself as a a best friend and someone I would want to treat that way is really helpful. And it, it comes up, you know, multiple times a day, whether it's looking back at something I'd done and wishing I'd done it better or feeling anxious about something upcoming and wanting to do it perfectly. Or, you know, even just a mistake I've made. I remember looking back and thinking, oh, well, if my sister who I consider my best friend, if she had done that, I would say, well, you know, but that's understandable because of this context and your intention was good instead of before where I would have said, oh my gosh, I'm so stupid. Why did I do that? I should have done this instead. So I think just considering yourself your best friend and asking, well, how would I, how would I talk to myself? How would I treat myself? What would I say or do if this were my best friend that was doing it instead of me? That has been one of the most effective ways of challenging perfectionism and eating disorder and depression and everything else.
2: I I couldn't agree more with that. And I think Stephanie and I talk, I think a lot about that on the show where like, if you wouldn't say that to someone else, why would you say that to yourself? And you have to treat yourself with that same compassion, right? So important. So I love that you brought that up.
0: Yeah. And one of the things that was so enlightening for me about that too, is that once I started treating myself that way and not having such rigid, unrealistic expectations, I tended to, to perform better too, because it was like all the pressure was off. And so it, it became more of a positive spiral instead of a negative spiral. Yeah. that,
1: that That's amazing that you saw that transformation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just motivation to keep going. Like it was working right. Yes. And it's yeah. all, and it all goes back to
0: mindset. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And it was, I mean, it was slow and incremental for sure, but it does, you do build on each positive experience, I think. And it's that much easier to take on the next one. Cause you do, like you said, you know, it works and you've seen it work. So you can trust that it's going to work again.
2: Mm-hmm. So Lisa, where can our
0: readers find you? I am on have a website it's a wix website w-i-x so if you just search lisa whalen wix it will come up the the actual website address is a little unwieldy so i won't read it off um but if you search it that way it comes up pretty quickly and easily or i'm on social media at lisa irish
2: whalen okay and we'll link all this up in the show notes and you have a special offer for our guests
0: I do. Um, the first person who contacts you either through social media or email will get a free copy of the book, a free paperback copy of the book that I'm happy to mail to them anywhere in the US. Thank
2: you so much. And as we wrap up, we'd like to ask all of our guests: what does the art of living well mean to you?
0: To me, it's all about balance. Um, that was something that I had to learn, and I'm constantly working on it all the time, but to me, it's about trying to achieve wellness in my mental state, my emotional state, my psychology, my spiritual state. And, um, you know, it's obviously you can't do all of those things well all the time. So it's really about maintaining a balance in terms of the emphasis and time and attention I give each one. And I found that the the better I can try to maintain that balance, the happier and and Healthier I am too. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for so sharing. So um,
1: Yeah. Well, we've we've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation today, and I know all our listeners are going to take away so much from it. I think this is just such a relatable, a relatable topic in a unique scenario, right? <laughs> yes. Exactly. You have definitely a, a, a unique spin on everything. So.
0: I've still enjoyed it. It's been so much fun talking to you too. Thanks so much for having me on. And I I feel like I've learned a lot from having this conversation too. So I'm really looking forward to listening to some of the other other episodes as well.
1: Thanks. Well, that's, we're just about sharing everyone's journey and experiences. And I think to your point about conversations, I think we all learn from Mm -hmm. a conversation and we all need to be having more conversations. And I think if anything, that the last year or 12, 15 months has taught us is that we need to be sitting down and having more conversations with people.
2: Absolutely. And and if our listeners are interested in another episode on perfectionism, episode 68, which um, is out there, is a great um, episode, a great conversation all about perfectionism. So thank you so much, Lisa, and have a wonderful day. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, you too. It was a pleasure.
1: Thanks, bye-bye. Yeah, bye.
2: Thank you so much for listening to the Art of Living Well podcast. We are so grateful that you joined us
1: today. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or anyone else you think may benefit from this information. We'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast, leave us a review, and tag the Art of Living Well podcast on social media.
2: If you want more inspiration in between episodes, you can find us on social media at Living underscore well on Instagram and Facebook, where we will share snippets from our daily lives and our journey to living well.